Thank you, praise team, for leading us today in our singing. Church, please turn your Bibles to Acts in chapter 22, if you will. Acts chapter 22. While you're turning there, I want to remind you, some of you saw this already in the midweek update or heard about it in our uh, Bible Fellowship Group announcements. On October 23rd, two weeks from today, at 3.45 in the parlor, we're going to be hosting a welcome reception for our two newest staff members. So for the Flint family and for the Spurduto family. Some of you have said, well, we, you know, we did something for Hunter, but you know, we, don't, we haven't done anything for the, for the Flints yet. When they came to our church, we didn't do a welcome reception. And that was intentional. Uh, we wanted to uh, move them together because the Spurdutos were right on their heels. So we thought we would do one combined welcome reception. So we want you to come 345, between 345 and when small groups start on October 23rd, we want you to bring uh, cards welcoming them, gift cards blessing them. We want to welcome them officially to our church and for following God's call in their life to come become part of our church family. So please make note of that. Again, this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22, uh, verse 30, so the very end of Acts 22, and then all the way through the end of Acts chapter 23. It was September of 1996, and I was a sophomore at NC State University, which is in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was my first experience with a hurricane. I had moved to North Carolina when I was a junior in high school, so this was about four years later, and it was my first experience dealing with a hurricane. As Hurricane Fran uh, hit landfall about Cape Fear, North Carolina, as a Category 3 hurricane with 115 mile per hour sustained wind speed. And I recall all the commotion. I recall everyone getting prepared. And I recall as a storm tracked through the land that the eye of the storm was going to come right over the Raleigh, North Carolina area. And I remember this being really exciting, right? Never been in a hurricane, never experienced something like that. And the wind speeds, of course, had died down by then, but it was still a big deal. There was still a lot of wind, there was still a lot of rain, and probably one of the most uh, maybe exciting things about it was one of my closest friends from high school after I'd moved to North Carolina, went to college with me there, and he was a meteorologist major, okay? So he was like, we got to go out there and check it out. So that's what we did. We went out there with a group of friends and we started checking everything out. And it was incredible, like down trees everywhere and rain and flooding in certain areas and damaged structures and damaged cars and power lines down. And, and we were right there. And, and by the way, the eye of the storm tracked right over that area. Now the eye of the storm can be like 20 miles wide. And interestingly, one of the things I learned about the eye of a hurricane once it makes landfall is it's probably one of the safest places to be because there's very little rain and it's very it's relatively calm even in that storm the eye of the storm now we know hurricanes bring a lot of damage they bring a lot of uh they leave a lot of damage in their wake it did it with fran and it did with ian as we saw in florida over just a couple weeks ago. In fact, Amy and I have friends who live on Sanibel Island. As you know, that's kind of right where it went over. Uh, he took a, a worship pastor position there at a church and 
they had to evacuate. They had a friend who stayed on the island. Their, their friend's front door is 18 feet off of the, the ground level, right on stilts or however they built it. They said that the water was up to the door. That's how high the water was in that area. So my friend posted pictures because uh, they got back on the island via boat, I think either yesterday or the day before, showed pictures of his house. They, in their house, they had, they had water that had reached five feet up on the wall. All of their furniture, everything was displaced, turned over. Most everything is ruined. I mean, it's devastating, but you understand the wake of a storm. I mean, it brings destruction in this sort of thing. As we pick up our sto- the story here in the book of Acts again, we see that Paul is in the middle of a storm. There's chaos surrounding him, right? And if it wasn't for the Roman tribune, Claudius Lysias, rescuing Paul, the Jews would have killed him. That's where we ended in the pat in the previous week. Unless we think that Claudius Lysias was rescuing Paul because he was on Paul's side, he would have beaten him himself if he didn't learn accidentally that Paul was a Roman citizen and then get really scared about his own well-being himself. Well, that's where we are this morning. We're picking up at Acts 22, verse 30. And as we make our way through the text this morning, I'm going to note several applicatory points that I think we need to think about in our own lives, consider in our own lives as we, as we move forward through our weeks and our days. So if you will, please stand. We're going to read together Acts 22, verse 30, and we're going to read now down through verse 11. Acts twenty-two thirty, 30, and we'll read through ver- chapter 23 and verse 11. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he, that is Paul, was being accused by the Jews, he, this time, this is the Roman tribune, unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up until this day. And the high priest, Ananias, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to law, yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And we had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees', Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, 
For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that in the midst of the storms of our lives, you are present and you are near. And we pray today that as we look to what is taking place by your plan and according to your providence in the life of Paul, in the life of the early church, in the life of the leadership there in Jerusalem, I pray, Lord, that we would walk boldly in truth and walk boldly in love, recognizing that while things may be different today contextually, you are still with us. And there is still an enemy who is against us. And we still find hope and strength and support in you. God, speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So the tribune, the same one who saved Paul already from the Sanhedrin or from the council, uh, is interested to learn what Paul believed. In fact, he's really interested to learn why the Jews had so much against this man named Paul. So he calls him to himself and before the council, and he wants to hear from Paul what's going on. Now, maybe he thought it would be entertaining. Maybe he thought it would be entertaining to, to learn what Paul had to say. Or maybe he just wanted a bigger picture of the situation, right? He understood that if there was uh, an unrest going on here, that maybe people from Rome would come back and it would haunt him because he was the tribune. And he just needed to have a greater understanding of the context of what the Jewish leadership had against this man named Paul. Either way, there he is. And what we see is that Paul doesn't get very far in his defense, does he? Paul isn't able to say very much before it's quickly stopped, before everything goes off the rails. In fact, Paul, as he begins to say what he wants to say, is quickly interrupted. He starts out by saying, hey, I, I've lived my life with a clear conscience before God up until this day. And then quickly, the, 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 the high priest, Ananias, says to him, says to the people there, strike that guy in the mouth. So he just stops everything in that moment. Now, why would Paul say what he said about living with a clear conscience before God? Well, I think he was probably answering a question from Acts chapter 21 and verse 21, this idea about the rumor that Paul is telling all the Jews everywhere to forsake the law of Moses. And Paul's trying to say, look, with a clear conscience, I've lived before God up until this day. And I think what the council would have heard in this moment was that Paul was saying, I'm a faithful Jew and I've always been a faithful Jew. In fact, this is speculation, but if Paul wasn't so rudely interrupted with a strike to the mouth, I think he would have gone on and he would have said something like, and by the way, God is faithful. Not only have I lived with a clean conscience before God, what's most important is that God is faithful. That God has kept his promises to us and that's who Jesus is. That Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one who has been, who has been prophesied to and foretold and he is the one who, is, who has been sent as the, the king and he is the one who has come, the, the long expected son of David and in him there is life and in him there is hope. I believe that's what Paul would have done. Why? Because that's what Paul's whole ministry has been showing that Jesus is the Christ, 
But instead, he was interrupted. The council wasn't hearing any of it. They didn't like what Paul had to say about being a faithful person or being, having a clear conscience before God. So before we get to Paul's explosive response here, I want to say a word about conscience. And there's mild disagreement about what Paul means when he says, I've lived my whole life up until this point with a clear conscience before God. Some scholars would say, well, he's, he's talking about his entire life. That's what he means. Other scholars would say, no, he couldn't have been talking about that. He's probably really talking about post-Damascus Road, post-being converted to Christianity. That's what he means when he says, I have a, a clear or a good conscience before God. I believe he means his whole life, right? Even pre-Damascus Road. In other words, Paul genuinely thought that he was doing God's will as he persecuted the church. He genuinely thought that. He genuinely believed that as he was persecuting, as he was killing, as he was, uh, as he was you know, approving of others being put to death, that he was serving God. In fact, Jesus himself alludes to this. In John chapter 16, you remember he's telling his, his disciples that he's going to send a helper, but he's also warning them of the persecution that is to come. You'll recall this. And basically, he says to them, look, there's coming a time when people are going to persecute you, and even in their persecution, it's going to be as though they think they're serving God. They think they're serving God. He says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. In other words, with a clear conscience, they will kill you and they will persecute you, right? So then, hear this, a clear conscience before God doesn't necessarily mean sinless before God. A clear conscience before God does not necessarily mean sinless before God. And friends, what we learn from this is the importance of being skeptical about our own wisdom. We must be skeptical of our own wisdom, right? As fallen people, we have to be careful to follow God's word and God's ways, not our own wisdom, not our own ways. Yes, God gave us a conscience, and in a sense, we know right from wrong by our conscience, but our conscience is not an infallible guide. Why? Because we can be deceived, and so often we are deceived, and our hearts are led astray, and our consciences can be calloused because of our pursuit of sinfulness. Friends, if we are in Christ then we have every resource we need to live before God in a righteous and a holy way with a clear conscience. Our infallible guide to living rightly before God is the word of God and the spirit of God. This is our hope. This is the spirit of God making available and giving us insight into understanding the word of God, right? If we're in Christ, we have all the resources. We have God's spirit living in us. We have God's spirit helping us to understand God's word and God's ways. And the Holy Spirit, friends, enables us to live for God's glory, but we've got to want to live for God's glory. And we've got to, we've got to walk with the spirit. And we've got to depend on the word of God, and we gotta humble ourselves before the word of God and walk in his ways. Friends, be skeptical of your own wisdom. But back to verse three. So Paul is struck in the mouth, but he responds in a way that shows some 
unexpected aggression. I mean, let's just be honest. When you look, when you come to verse three, he's just struck in the mouth. Then Paul said, God is gonna strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, if you're like me, you're surprised at this a little bit. Like this seems really aggressive. This seems like Paul was completely driven by his emotion. And this was an emotional time. So some of you maybe like me were, are a little surprised to read this. Like, Paul, did you really just respond that way? Well, a lot of people have tried to explain the sequence of events. Some would argue that Paul is just being like Jesus. Jesus reserved his harshest, most critical words for the religious leaders, and that's what he's doing. Even here, he was just being harsh like Jesus. Some would argue that while Jesus did speak harshly to the religious leaders, Jesus was always in control of his emotions. So Paul clearly wasn't in control of emotions, so actually Paul was sinning here. Essentially, Paul is saying, look, God is going to strike you. God is going to judge you, you whitewashed wall. You look good on the outside, but inside you're full of wretchedness. And here's the reason. Because you're trying to judge me as a lawbreaker, but that's exactly what you're doing right now. How could this be? Well, in verse 4, we see that the, Paul, the crowd questions Paul. I can't believe you just said that. You're talking about the high priest here. Would you speak negatively against the high priest? Would you speak this way? And that leads to some discussion about verse five. Did Paul know that Ananias was the high priest? How could he not know? Did Paul know that it was the high priest, Ananias, who actually uh, commanded that he would be struck? Maybe, maybe not. There's a lot of differences about what people think. So some people then think that Paul is actually apologizing here in verse five. Oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know this was the high priest, so I'm sorry. Because the word says you shouldn't speak negatively or you shouldn't go against your rulers here. Others believe that Paul did know that Ananias was the high priest. And that verse five needs to be interpreted as irony. In other words, I didn't know you were the high priest because a true high priest who loved God and followed the law wouldn't act that way. So how could you be the high priest if you're gonna command something to happen that goes against the law? And because you did, you must not really be a high priest. Now, we may never really know how to interpret this fully, okay? But as we look at the sequence of events that follow, I think there's some things we really need to understand. And the first is this, or the next is this. We need to consider our witness when responding to difficult people and situations. We need to consider our witness when responding to difficult people and situations. Think about this, friends. Whatever we make of Paul's response, we need to see the bigger picture here. What God was giving Paul was another opportunity to proclaim Christ. God was giving Paul another opportunity to speak and to live the gospel. And while the Sanhedrin's reaction to Paul's opening statement was loaded, Paul's response, whether intentional or not, wasn't going to facilitate a pleasant and fruitful conversation. It just wasn't. Paul, in a sense, was burning a bridge in that moment. And I get it, right? Emotions were high and they were raging and the whole situation was dynamic. But later on, as Paul writes to the church at Colossae, 
Paul will write these words, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Paul, seemingly, in that moment, wasn't living up to his own words that he would write later on. Or like the Apostle Peter, as he writes in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and following, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your own hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, revile your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good than it is than it should be God's Excuse me. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Do you see the picture here? In situations that we face in life, when there is difficulty, when there are difficult people, when there are difficult circumstances, we need to consider our witness. We need to consider the way that we are going to engage with others and respond to others. Because what's at stake here is the gospel. Will we undo what we want to say by our actions? Or will our actions support the hope that we're about to offer in Christ Jesus? And no, this isn't easy. And scripturally speaking, there are examples of strong and direct conversations, but we still must consider our witness when responding. Why? Because so often, friends, when we respond out of emotion, we lose our audience. And unfortunately, everyone in this room knows that. Everyone in this room knows that. Because we have all responded to people in ways that we're not proud of. Driven by our emotions, we have said things that we wish we would not have said to our spouse, to our children, to our parents, to our friends, to our coworkers, because we're upset and we're mad and we don't consider, we don't take a moment to consider and we just lash out or we just speak. And what we've done in that moment is that we've burned a bridge. Even if the bridge is repairable, we've burned the bridge in the moment. We've made it difficult in the moment. And this is important. It's important for us to consider our witness when we're engaging with others, when we're responding to others. Now, I don't want you to hear me say that we just need to tell people what they need to hear. That's not what I'm saying. We are to speak the truth, but we are to do so in love. And yes, sometimes we have to say hard things, but it's always best to do so in love, because that's what scripture says, and in a way that is not gonna unnecessarily push people away. Well, the next thing we see here is the importance of knowing our audience, right? We've gotta know our audience. So Paul is there, things are going off the rails, and Paul recognizes, okay, in this group of people, in this council, there are some who are Pharisees, there are some who are Sadducees, and they're different groups, they're different sects of of Jewish leadership and they have some different beliefs. They're not, they're not the same on everything. They have different ideas of what, to, what they believe and, and Paul understands that. He understands that and he, he exposes that. 
knowing the idiosyncrasies of their varying beliefs, he uses it to their, his advantage here. Now Luke's summary listed for us there in verse 8 of their beliefs leaves some people's heads scratching because on, on the surface, technically it's not exactly correct. And this tells us that Luke understands Paul to be nuancing their beliefs, okay? Paul is nuancing their beliefs to the situation and to the moment. So, for instance, Daryl Bach, New Testament scholar, suggests that while the Sadducees didn't completely rule out existence after death, it's clear they didn't believe in a positive form of afterlife either. And thus, spirits and angels... Uh, They didn't believe that spirits and angels were directing or communicating with people as Jesus would have after his resurrection, right? After his bodily resurrection. Now, this is important because the Pharisees would have left open this possibility. Now, the Pharisees' response there in the moment, no, we don't see anything wrong with this guy. Maybe, Maybe a spirit did speak to him. They wouldn't have believed Paul. They wouldn't have believed that Jesus was risen. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah. But at least they wanted to save face because they did believe that there was some opportunity for an intermediate state where there could be connection to someone who is living today. So short of believing Paul, they wanted to save face and say, hey, maybe this could have happened. Now, Paul would have misunderstood that, but maybe, just maybe, it could have happened. But here's the point, friends. By knowing his audience, Paul was able to refocus their attention. Everything in the moment was just disdain for Paul. Everything. And Paul, knowing his audience, was able to refocus their attention away from himself. And this bought him some time. Look, friends, when we know our audience, when we understand their assumptions, their worldview, their beliefs, their values, what they're living for, then we will be better prepared to communicate truth to them. We'll be better better prepared to engage with them in a way that is helpful in a way that moves a conversation in a direction that we want to go. If we enter into a conversation unaware or simply misinformed about someone's belief system, then we may waste time on things that are immaterial. So the question for us is, how do we learn our audience? How do we know who we're talking to? Well, that's a good question. It's something that we can all grow in. One of the things we can do is we can ask questions. We can ask questions in the moment to the people that we're connecting with, to learn more about what they believe, what drives them, what what assumptions they're making. We can read. like So sometimes you're just gathering data about certain peoples or certain demographics or certain political uh, beliefs or certain religious beliefs. And we just read. We gather data about these things. It's important that we know who we are talking to so that we can better engage them in conversations about truth, engage them in conversations that matter. So Paul here, he sets off a firestorm and these groups are at each other, right? Violence erupts and the tribune thinks that Paul may be torn in two. This is a very graphic word that highlights the reality of the threat to Paul's life. So in that moment, Paul is being swept away by the tribune for his own protection. And then he's in, back in the barracks. And who shows up but Jesus? Look at verse 11, if you will. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now think about that. 
What comfort? What hope? That word translated take courage there is a word that is used only by Jesus in the New Testament. It's used five times. It's used in, my, in times of difficult situations. It's used in times when Jesus wants to communicate to someone very clearly, look, take courage, have hope, be comforted, be encouraged in this moment. So this is an important word. It's an important word that Jesus is saying to Paul and to others because he is present, because he is there. Jesus' presence and promise make all the difference in the world, and we need to believe God's promises, friends. We need to believe God's promises. Just consider the intensity of the situation. There is a storm all around. I mean, the storm is brewing. It's, It's happening. Everywhere Paul is right now, there is a wake of destruction, and people want him dead, and people are persecuting him. And the truth is, Paul has followed the Holy Spirit into the storm. And there in the barracks, the eye of the storm, and Jesus is there with him. And is there a safer place to be? Is there a safer place to be than right there in the presence of Jesus who comes to him and comforts him? And promises him, hey, take courage, Paul. Take courage. I'm here, and I'm not done with you yet. I have a purpose for your life. I have a plan for your life. And just as you've testified to the facts about me and the facts about the resurrection here, you're going to do so in Rome. In the eye of the storm, there is not a safer place for Paul to be. Even though there's destruction and chaos all around him, there he is in the presence of Jesus. And by the way, Jesus' assuring words to Paul set an outline for the rest of the book of Acts because the rest of the book of Acts is really about Paul getting to Rome. How will he get him there? Now, let's just be clear. At this point, there in the barracks that night, Jesus doesn't lay out every step that it's gonna be to get Paul to Rome. He just says, he just says I'm gonna, you're gonna go there. And his presence there is his promise. And the same is true in our lives, friends. In the middle of a storm, in the middle of difficulty, we don't know every step that God is gonna take us through. We just know he promises his presence and he promises us that he will see us through to the end. He promised that the work he began in us, he will finish. He will bring to completion at the day of Christ. What does this mean for us? It means we have hope. It means we have the encouragement of Christ. It means that he is with us. It means that he is for us. It means he is not against us. It means that he is on our side. Friends, we need to believe God's promises. Think about this. What comfort and hope we could experience if we just believed the word of God. If we just believed the promises of God that are contained in his word, right? That he is with us. That he will not forsake us that he is for us and not against us, that he goes before us, that he, will, that he will give us words to say in the moment, that he will provide peace, that in our weakness he is strong, that his word never returns void, that he gives wisdom to those who ask for it, that he will see us through to the end, that he provides for our needs as we seek him. These are God's promises to us. And I don't know what the specific of your situation is right now. Maybe there's a storm, but hear me say this. If you are seeking the Lord, if you are living for his glory, there is no question that right now God is by your side. 
If you are in Christ, God is with you. So hold on to him and believe his promises. God knew exactly what Paul needed in the moment and friends, God knows exactly what you need in every moment. So walk by faith. You don't know the steps, but walk by faith. You know the one who commands the steps, who ordains the steps. Walk by faith. It's been said that God's servants are invincible until God is ready to take them home. So we just need to live by faith and believe his promises. Well, let's quickly look at the rest of the chapter here. So in verse 12 through the end of the chapter, there's several things that happen. The first thing we learn about is a plot. 40 or so Jews come together and they take a vow and they say, we're not gonna eat or drink anything until we kill the apostle Paul. So they, they plan this, um, they plan this, um, this sequence of events where Paul is gonna be brought out to the, to the council again and then they're gonna murder him and then everything's gonna be fine. Well, in the middle of all this, we learn that Paul has a nephew that's living in Jerusalem or that's there in Jerusalem that overhears the plan who comes to Paul, tells Paul what's going on and then Paul tells one of the guards watching him that this guy, his nephew, needs to talk to the tribune. So this guy, his nephew, tells the tribune what's gonna happen, and the tribune doesn't want this to happen. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to give anything over to the Jews. So the tribune then says, okay, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna get 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen, and we're gonna bring Paul up to meet with Governor Felix in Caesarea. So God is at work. Like, this is an amazing thing. And then the end of the chapter is all about the letter that... Uh, the, the tribune writes to the governor telling him why Paul is going there. Why is he on the way there? So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from this text? What do we learn from how this is coming out? And here, I think the answer is that God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted. God's plans and purposes will not be thwarted. Jesus appears to Paul and tells him to take courage, you're gonna go to Rome, but now there's a real threat on Paul's life, but God knows this, and God's over this. They wanna kill Paul, but that's not God's plan, so God protects Paul, by the way, protects him by using a force of people who are serving a emperor who cares not for God, right? God uses even his enemies to move his plan to fruition, to bring his plan along to the end. Friend, God's promises are worthwhile because he is sovereign and good. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46 declares that God knows all things, that he knows the end from the beginning. And he declares that his plans will not be undone. His plans will not be thwarted. Friends, this truth ought to give us reason to praise God, ought to give us reason to honor him as king, and it ought to give us reason to fully, to be fully confident before him. But there's one more thing that this truth ought to do. It ought to cause those who remain opposed to God to question themselves. It ought to cause us to wonder how we fit into this plan because God's plans will not be 
thwarted. So what does that mean for us? I don't know where you stand in relation to God today. I don't know where you stand in relation to Jesus Christ today. My assumption is that not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus Christ, has recognized or confessed their sin and asked God for forgiveness, placing faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. That's my assumption. But I am certain of this, there is a God and he is worthy of all worship and he is glorious and he is powerful and he will judge sinners. He will judge all those who rebel against him. And before you accuse me of being judgmental, let me just say this, everyone in this room is a sinner and everyone in this room stands in need of God's grace. And the only difference between Someone in this room who is a follower of Jesus Christ and someone in this room who is still outside of Christ, disconnected from God, is that God has poured out his wrath on Jesus in our place. Today, hear this. If you are not in Christ, the wrath of God is on your life. And if you die in your sin, you will die to, a, to an eternity apart from God's goodness and apart from God's grace in a place called hell, a lake of fire. But our hope is this, that Jesus lived perfectly, died, and rose again. And that through faith in him, we can have reconciliation with God and the hope of eternal life. And that's God's promise. And friends, while we don't know all this life, all that this life will hold, we do know that God holds this life. Some of us this morning are faced with a decision. Some people in this room are faced with a decision this morning. What will I do with Jesus Christ? Many of us has already responded. We are, we're trusting him. We believe he is the son of God who came to this earth, who died for our sin, and who rose again and reigns victoriously. And you're trusting in him for the forgiveness of sin. And your eternity is secure. But there are others in this room who have not yet put their hope in Jesus Christ. This morning, if you have questions about the gospel, if you have questions about who Jesus is, about how you can know forgiveness of sin and eternal life, come and talk to us, whether it's during the time of invitation, which we're about to go to, or whether it's outside, out in the foyer, or whether it's you call the office and make an appointment this week. This is the most important thing that any of us could consider today. There are others in this room who are interested in membership in this church family. And if that's you and you have questions about that, you can come talk to us here or catch us outside. There are some in this room who want to pray. You want to stay right where you are. You want to gather some friends. You want to pray that God would be at work in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in your kids, in your workplace, however. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. We're available to pray with you. If you have questions or you want someone just to uh, pray with you over something in your life, we would love to connect with you. We're available here at the front. I'm convinced that God is at work and we should all be convinced that his plans and his purposes will not be thwarted. So let's humble ourselves before him and let's draw near to him. Will you pray with me? God, please move. Please move in this room. Please move for your glory. Please move for our good. Please don't leave us where we are in our own wisdom. 
Please don't leave us where we are in our own righteousness. Please don't leave us where we are in our own ways. Change us, Lord. Make us new. Help us to fall before you and to worship you. Have your way in us, Lord. May we be humble before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and respond?